Hello, and welcome to the Green Minds podcast. Showcasing the science, stories and solutions behind climate change with Phoebe Scott, Alex Miller, Lottie Flashkiss and Guy Wilkinson. Hello and welcome to another episode of the IB Green Minds podcast. This week's episode is supported by PAI Partners, and today we have two presenters, Lottie Plashkis and myself, Guy Wilkinson. This week, Lottie and I have the pleasure of introducing James Stacey, Partner and Global Director for Climate Change and Low Carbon Economy Transition at ERM. James co-authored the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures Technical Supplement on Scenario Analysis. He's also held advisory board and working group positions with the United Nations Environment Programme Finance Initiative, the UN Principles for Responsible Investment and the Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change. James is a fellow at the University of Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership, with whom he has delivered sustainability leadership development to senior and C-suite executives for over 12 years. James, welcome to the show. Thank you. James, that's quite a mouthful of a, of a CV there. So let's start early on in your career. Tell us a little bit about sustainability consulting, what was what it was all about when you were at KPMG and perhaps how it's changed now. Well, a lot has changed, I think, in the last five years. Um, the Paris Agreement that obviously delivered global consensus around uh, national government commitment to tackle climate change and the emergence of national emission reduction plans has shifted the agenda from one which was perhaps a little peripheral to core business planning uh, and strategy and future financial performance of an organisation to an issue that today really is one of maybe the top three defining issues that will shape the success of many different sectors and organizations over the next decade and beyond. So so the the, the issue of sustainability has moved from a side corridor type issue within a large corporate to being one that's a board and executive committee level key item, key agenda, uh, and one that is occupying their minds, you know, a significant proportion of the time now. So you mentioned there that um, perceptions of sustainability have changed markedly. Obviously, now there are many sustainability consultancies offering services to help clients decarbonize and also to understand their climate related risk. Across the industry as a whole, have you heard of instances of companies seeking these kind of sustainability services more as a greenwashing exercise rather than to implement change. I kind of I remember you know talking to people about managing risks, and I'm wondering about whether they're doing whether they're going to do that by uh, doing good or whether it's more about kind of avoiding scrutiny. Do you have any I don't know secondhand stories or have heard of instances of this? Well, I mean, I think the reality is that you've got a lot of different motives that would drive an organization towards wanting to develop a sustainability strategy um, and produce disclosures. Uh, Those disclosures um, might be what some would think at times could be greenwash. However, I think the key point really 
is the proportion of businesses that are responding to this agenda today that are doing so because they're deadly serious about how sustainability issues and particularly climate, but not just climate, how those sustainability issues will influence the shape and the financial performance of their business. You know, the proportion of companies for whom that is their motive now is very high, very high indeed. Is there no greenwashing going on? I think that would be incorrect to say that there's none. But, you know, the proportion of organisations that have completely shifted their mindset on this agenda to one where it is a key driver, they recognise it's a key driver of their future strategic shape as an organisation and their performance, and therefore their attractiveness to investors, their bankability for lenders, et cetera, et cetera. You know, that very high now, very high indeed. And do you find that clients are sometimes perhaps surprised about the scope of recommendations? And do you find that you kind of have to persuade them and take them on a journey of understanding the value of acting on sustainability? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the reality here is an increasing proportion of senior leaders and decision makers in organisations do now understand why these issues are of material significance to their business and therefore don't need to be persuaded. However, there is typically an absence of consistent or consistency of understanding of these issues across an entire organisation. So whilst the senior leaders and decision makers increasingly do understand and do not need to be persuaded, they do, of course, have an entire organisation to take on the journey with them. And therefore, I think where there is an engagement and awareness raising and a business case building exercise to do, often today it's not with the leaders, it's with with the next tier of management that sits beneath them. Uh, that needs to be persuaded that they should go on the journey with their leader. And and that's not in any way a criticism. It's more a reflection of the commercial landscape that those individuals have developed through their career in, where sustainability issues were for many years, a, a communications exercise as much as a substantive business Uh, adjustment exercise. Uh, So that tends to be right now where the engagement and the personal development requirements are in an organisation, rather than persuading the executive committee or the board that they need to do something. At that level, most organisations now get it. That's really interesting. Thank you very much for that. That's actually a point we, we haven't heard on the podcast before. I was wondering from your experience, what the best way of engaging um, those not in senior leadership, so middle managers in organizations, what are the best way of engaging them with the issue of sustainability and how to incorporate that into their everyday runnings of of business? Yeah. Um, Look, I mean, I think there's typically two levers that you can pull with an individual. Uh, one One is their mind which requires a very robust commercial and business case. And the other is with their heart, 
which might be appealing to a more um, societal um, uh, driver uh, or environmental driver. But the reality is that people in, um, in leadership and management positions within an organization will only be able to do so much if the heart is the only lever that can be pulled because they're operating within the constraints of a commercial entity with commercial objectives. And that therefore means that whilst appealing to somebody's uh, heart is a lever that's worth pulling and, and, and very much a lever that is used in engagement and leadership development exercises, the primary focus you have, you have to nail the business case. And therefore, in engaging anybody at any high, at any level really within an organization it has to be clear what the commercial case is what's the commercial driver for action um, and if that is understood then yes then appealing to, to to the heart might well help and might well give that extra level of impetus for some for some individuals but the business case has got to be clear and, and of course, that's very easy today. You know, 20 years ago, that would have been more challenging. Today, that is, that is a pretty straightforward exercise because the business case is extremely compelling for most sectors and most parts of the value chain within a sector and most geographies. So it's the exception now where this isn't a material issue to future business success uh, rather than the norm. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Moving on now, uh, the Bank of England recently got a new mandate to drive to net zero. And I think you made a comment in a, in a publication basically saying that it's, this is a sort of another variable which is going to help tilt debt capital markets towards net zero and the low, the low carbon economy transition. I just wondered if you could expand on, on your comment, which was something around how it's going to affect the trends on the cost of capital and liquidity in financial markets. Yeah, so we're, I mean, obviously, we've seen over the last probably 24 months, but particularly the last 12 months, a whole breadth of different corporate entities come out and declare net zero strategies. And in the context of your question, that has included financial institutions, both investors and lenders. Um, and it's in that context that, of course, the Bank of England made their statement. So if we look at large financial institutions making net zero commitments and just ask the question, well, what does that mean? What, what does that translate into? And what it translates into is a detailed analysis of their financial exposures. So if it's a bank, their lending book, where's the money in the lending book? Um, and in which, specifically, which organizations, which sectors, which geographies is it deployed? Now, if a bank is to make a commitment to transition that lending book to net zero, what that means is that over the time frame within which that commitment is due to play out, typically 30 years, the bank needs to both be measuring what the carbon emission is associated with the lending book. For most banks, that's a new KPR. That's a new measure that hasn't been looked at in the past. So they're now measuring something that they didn't look at before. And not only are they measuring it, but they are monitoring it in the context of their own commitment. 
to transition to zero. So they are setting in targets to move that emission associated with their book down on a trajectory that aligns with credible references and standards that have been produced by international organizations around what a credible scenario or trajectory would look like. So what does that then mean? That then means that they are now engaging with their, with their customer base, whereby there is a new metric in the room, whereby they are wanting to understand how that counterparty is navigating its its, its, its own emission intensity and emission, absolute emission, in a manner that would be consistent with the financial institution's own strategic plan. And so therefore what you've now got is conversations between those that, that provide capital to the system and those that require it to run their business. Those conversations now, including, and what are you doing on your, on, on your decarbonization strategy? And can you provide assurance to me that your decarbonization strategy is consistent with mine as the provider of the capital? Well, these are big conversations to be having. Um, and of course, where that assurance doesn't emerge, there will also then be a trigger around risk. Okay, well, if you're not transitioning and the world is, where does that leave your business vis-a-vis -vis its ability to thrive in, in an economy that's decarbonizing. Okay, so now my risk profile assessment of you is adjusting. I'm gonna to have to change that because you're not now doing what the system is doing and what I am going to do myself. And as, as, as risk assessments of counterparties are adjusted, so the price of the capital is adjusted. Because if you're a higher risk for me to be deploying my capital to, then I require a higher return in order to compensate myself for the increased risk. So cost of capital gets adjusted. And so therefore, the, the entry of the financial services industry into these net zero commitments that we're seeing is really significant in terms of the, the entry of the capital market, if you like, and the lending market into um, the debate that would be happening then within any corporate entity that needs to tap those, those, those markets for capital. Um, this is a new reason, a new driver for why they've got to crack on and do more than they might have otherwise done, as well as all the other drivers that that business might be facing around intervention, technology breakthroughs, et cetera, et cetera, that might also be pushing them in that direction. They've now got the source of capital as well. So it's a really significant moment. Okay, thank you very much for that. I just wanted to ask really how, how seriously financial institutions are taking the concept of climate risk, because on the surface, it looks like they're not really taking it seriously at all. Like Barclays and, and HSBC, for example, are, are some of the biggest funders of fossil fuels and continue to do so. It's not like they've stopped, even though they have announced net zero targets. So I was wondering if you could just perhaps comment on how seriously they are taking it. Because on the surface, it doesn't seem like they consider it a serious risk at the moment. Okay, great question. My observation of the financial services industry is that it's in a state of flux right now, where it is shifting very, very quickly to a position where it is taking climate-related financial risk extremely seriously. Uh, that there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, number one, 
um, is they are themselves mostly listed on the stock market and have investors in their business. And those investors are asking serious questions of them around how are you integrating this new risk factor into how you do business and how you plan for your strategic future. Secondly, banks are going up quite a, a significant learning curve around how the adjustment of the economy to be one that is much lower in its carbon intensity in the future than it is today or was in the past, how that creates uh, commercial winners and losers. Uh, and, and, and the awareness of that concept of winners and losers is increasing very rapidly. And of course, that translates to financial return and therefore the performance of that financial institution. So we now have enlightened self-interest. If we are alert to this, we will perform better as a business. If we are not alert to it, we will not perform as well. And then thirdly, and a very important driver for the banking industry is the financial regulator. So we saw in April 2019, as far as the UK market is concerned, the Prudential Regulation Authority intervene within the banking and insurance sectors and mandate effectively TCFD um, into the uh, financial regulatory obligations on the sector. So that we now have a situation where we've got a financial regulator also knocking on the door and placing quite significant expectations. So if we look at those three drivers, investors, financial regulator, and an increasing awareness that there is self-interest in terms of your performance as a business. So these are all three big drivers. So therefore, we are seeing quite a transformational shift in the banking industry and the wider financial services industry in terms of its strategic response to this issue. Uh, and, and I would say they are much more serious than they were, and they will become more and more serious as well as they go through this, 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 um, this change program of integrating climate-related financial risk. Now, to your question, but they've declared net zero commitments. So how could they possibly still be financing uh, high carbon industries? Which is a really good question, I think, because, of course, these net zero commitments are being set. Uh, and I won't speak about specific ones, but at a general level, they're being set um, in a manner that is consistent with delivering a world whereby um, we achieve a, a global average temperature increase of well below two degrees, which is consistent with the Paris Agreement. Now, those agreements, the outcome of a well below two degrees um, does still allow the world to continue to emit a budget of carbon. So, we, so a net zero commitment doesn't translate into zero emissions today. What it means is a trajectory towards zero emissions that is consistent with delivering a world of well below two degrees. Hence, we will see financial institutions that are very serious about this and committed continue to finance at least for the next decade and probably into the second decade, into the 2030s, a, a, a proportion of um, carbon intensive industry. Uh, but that be consistent with still delivering uh, a well below two degrees outcome. So the key thing then becomes the credibility of the methodology that uh, they're using in, to measure um, whether they're on that net zero trajectory 
and how transparent those institutions are in, 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 um, in disclosing their own uh, performance against those methodologies. I was just wondering, there does seem to be a bit of a disconnect because you're, it's, it's very easy for financial firms to turn the tap off in 2049 and stop funding fossil fuels from 2049 and they can claim to be net zero by 2050 which is great but of course we do there seems to be a disconnect between that and the actual carbon budget which is i think around 560 gigatons of, yeah. of co2 and we get through about uh i think it's about 100 every decade and at the moment it seems like we're on course to burn well through that and a lot of ana analysis indicates that if we 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 have to leave 80% of the current fossil fuel reserves that we know we can access in the ground in order to be net zero by, by 2050. Otherwise, if we burn all that, we will uh, blow the carbon budget and go well into a four or five degree scenario. I was just wondering if you could expand on the um, sort of difficulties and the disconnect between, between those two sort of metrics, if you'd like. Yeah, it's a great question. Clearly, a net zero commitment that um, involves doing whatever you like until 2049 and then suddenly turning the taps off isn't a credible net zero um, commitment. And therefore, there is an integrity test around, well, what, what makes a net zero commitment credible? And, and the answer really to that is twofold. One is what is the what is the emission trajectory that you are tying your net zero commitment to? And is that emission trajectory itself consistent with delivering a world of well below two degrees? Then secondly, what are the milestone commitments that you are establishing for yourself as an organization that demonstrates that you are following that emission trajectory? So what's your 2025 emission profile as a lender, if we're sticking with the bank example? What's your 2025 um, emission profile look like? What's your target that you can demonstrate confirms that your lending book is on that credible trajectory that delivers the world to a well below two degrees outcome. And therefore, those are the two things to really keep an eye out for in terms of determining whether that institution is aligning itself with something that does deliver the ultimate sort of societal outcome that, that would be deemed to be credible. Uh, and there are lots of examples of financial institutions that, that have done exactly that. They, they're articulate in what the emission trajectories they tie their commitment to and have set interim uh, milestone uh, emission targets that then are consistent with, with the outcome that we'd all be looking for. You mentioned earlier about uh, the TCFD and um, uh, how it helps firms understand their uh, climate-related risk. It would be great if you could talk a bit about your work with the TCFD. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, we were delighted to work with the TCFD. Um, we worked with them through through the period uh, 2015 to 17. And our role really was to um, produce a guidance document that articulated how an organisation 
would go about responding to the TCFD recommendations. So the recommendations obviously set out a number of uh, requirements that an organisation would need to do, need to put uh, climate ready finance risk into their governance procedures, into their strategy procedures, into their risk management procedures, and into their metrics and targets. Uh, and at the centre of all of that, the whole concept of scenario analysis, i.e. Um, there remains uncertainty as to whether governments will follow through on all their policy commitments and the timing of those follow through and also the timing of technology uh, breakthroughs as different technologies come down the cost curve. So, so whilst we have an intent to contain warming to well below two degrees, there is uncertainty around how we'll get there and what the pathways will be. Hence, if what we're trying to evaluate here is how that journey towards tackling climate change, and of course the actual climate change that, that will inevitably happen, how those two variables will affect your future financial performance, then we need to consider different pathways or different scenarios of how the world will, will move forwards on this agenda. And so that's the other big area of advice that we provided is how would an organisation go about running that scenario analysis, looking at those different pathways of decarbonisation, and, and then translating that into what does it mean for you as a business and how you will perform as a business. Uh, important to remember that the TCFD really is all about understanding what the impact of both climate change and the decarbonisation journey what those impacts will be on the financial performance of an organization in order to enable um, investors and lenders into businesses to effectively invest and lend on an informed basis around what they're investing into in terms of future financial performance. Great, thanks very much. Obviously uh, we have TCFD becoming mandatory very soon. I was wondering what your view on the growth of TNFD is and what if that brings up any challenges or hurdles to come across in terms of implementation uh, in the near future. Yeah, so of course, CFD has been very impactful, very impactful indeed, really, in that what it has shone a light on is that climate change presents material financial risk and opportunity to many, many actors across the economic landscape. And it's worth just dwelling on that in that it's done that largely because it's been financially orientated. It's a financial set of metrics that TCFD is ultimately trying to enable uh, evaluation of. And so it's not surprising really Therefore, that the success of TCFD in surfacing these financial consequences has been recognised and is now being applied to other sustainability issues. Because, of course, we know that other sustainability issues also present material financial risk and opportunity to different parts of the economy. And again, just as climate change uh, was a few years ago, most of us didn't really understand 
precisely what that scale of financial consequence was. And we're now beginning to see that in climate change because TCFD's created that, that new requirement on organizations. And so therefore, I think it's very likely that we will see the principles of TCFD start to be applied across other dimensions of sustainability as a means of surfacing those same, uh, those same issues around how financially dependent we are upon creating these problems. And therefore, if we're to tackle these problems, what adjustments we need to make in terms of our, uh, our, our expectations of financial performance of organizations, or that those organizations need to adjust in order to remain viable and successful in a world that does seek to tackle these other sustainability issues as well. Okay, great. Thank you very much. I wanted to move on now and ask your opinion on the feasibility of implementing a carbon tax and whether that would be done on an EU-wide level with the UK included or uh, whether the UK would consider doing that in the near future and what implications that might have in terms of the acceleration to net zero. Well, I'm not too sure how the UK and the EU would go about that um, in terms of the uh, different policy uh, priorities and, and interests of the two different um, you know, jurisdictions. Um, but look, pricing carbon, whether it's through a tax or whether it's through a market mechanism such as a trading system, is a, is a very effective way of pricing the externality and creating the economic space then for alternative cleaner technologies that are coming down the cost curve, but haven't yet got to a point on the cost curve where they can compete head to head. And I think it's very uh, realistic to expect to see carbon priced through whatever mechanism, in increasingly seeing it carbon priced as a means of accelerating that that, that, that the, the, the transition through enabling alternative technologies to then compete earlier than they would otherwise. Thank you very much. I just wanted to ask you, James, how you're feeling about COP26 obviously coming up uh, later this year. I think Greta Thunberg said recently she thought it should be postponed um, and that she won't be attending. But I'm um, yeah, wondering what your thoughts are. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful uh, because I think it's been very helpful. It being postponed the 12 months that it's already been postponed, of course, it was meant to happen last year, because the geopolitics of climate change have changed with the Biden administration coming in. Um, it's helpful to have a 12-month window now where um, without that postponement, we would have been going into COP26 you know, days after the change in administration in, in, in the United States. Though countries did a lot of preparation last year on the basis that it might go ahead last year. So, of course, we had a number of commitments come out last year, whether it's Korea, Japan, the European Union. The UK had already made the commitment around zero emission or net zero emission economies by 2050. Uh, China, of course, came, came out uh, and made the same commitment for 2060. So... And meanwhile, a lot of corporates made big commitments last year, again, anticipating that COP26 might happen last year. So that's created quite a foundation of progress, despite the fact the meeting didn't happen last year. And yet we've now got another 12 months to build upon that 
and get to a point where COP26 has the potential to deliver the ratchet on the national emission reduction commitments of key economies in the world that starts to shift us towards actually being on a trajectory that could deliver well below two degrees. Of course, recognizing that the national emission reduction commitments that were made in Paris take us to somewhere nearer 2.7 to 3 degrees. So that ratchet being really important, and it feels to me in terms of what I'm seeing, both in the government and in the private sector world, there's a momentum building towards that. Now, whether we'll see national emission reduction commitments that are sufficient to deliver the well below two degrees, I don't know. But I think we can be very hopeful that we will see a ratchet that moves us significantly closer to that objective than where we are today, which would be you know, significant progress. Um, and of course, we've got the the US administration in the news today and yesterday appearing to position itself with the Chinese government for another bilateral agreement. Again, I think that's very positive in that, of course, the US and China signed a bilateral um, quite some time, I think about 15 months ahead of the Paris Agreement. That bilateral that they signed at that point being absolutely pivotal to Paris having a successful outcome. So the fact that they're looking or talking about doing the same at the moment, I think is also promising in terms of the foundation that that can create for geopolitical consensus to then emerge in COP26. And in terms of um, the level of uh, businesses rather than uh, national contributions, uh, you mentioned earlier about a lot of um, net zero commitments that have been appearing, popping up um, over the last few months. Um, what impact do you think COP26 might have on businesses? A significant impact in that large corporates um, recognise that these geopolitical events um, require a corporate response. And therefore, these events become a, a milestone in the calendar that can drive an organisation to want to have something to say ahead of that date in the diary. And so just as last year, we saw a lot of organizations come out with net zero commitments at a time when it was still possible COP26 would have occurred last year. The fact that it's been pushed back means we're likely to see more and more come out with similar commitments in order to meet or be aligned with government policy that will be, we hope, announced in COP26. So I think that these meetings can be, be very significant in, in, in driving action and commitment for, from large organisations. I wanted to ask uh, what you think about the current landscape for carbon offsets and where you think that that might progress to in the future. Well, yes, there's projections for very significant growth in the in carbon reduction projects playing you know a meaningful role within the decarbonisation journey um, obviously at the moment we've got regulated and voluntary markets and there is a requirement really within the voluntary market for standards that um, ensure that the 
emission reduction that's being delivered is consistent with the, the principles of achieving net zero. Subject to the right standards being applied, it's reasonable to expect organisations to be deploying carbon reduction projects as part of a, a holistic decarbonisation strategy. Yeah, I don't envy the person who uh, has to try and work out what all the verification monitoring mechanisms are going to be, because it sounds like an enormous task, but obviously a hugely important one. That's almost all from us today. Um, I've just got one final question for you, James, which is if listeners take away one thing from this episode of the IB Green Minds podcast, what would you want it to be? Well, I think that the climate change is a very significant issue for organisations. In my experience, organisations are now taking it very seriously. Um, and there is a recognition that it will shape the future performance of many different companies across many different sectors. Um, and that you know, if we were to roll the clock forward to 2030 and even further forward to 2040, we would be able to see how the decarbonisation of the economy has reshaped uh, organisations and reshaped the, the fortunes of different organisations. Well, James, thanks very much for coming on the show today. Thank you also to PAI Partners for supporting the podcast. And uh, thank you very much, James. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you, James. Thanks. Thank you.